0: You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. So we are now to Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. And this is where we're going to be for the next couple of months into the summer. The story of Joseph the Dreamer, if you guys can look at the screen there. uh, The series title for the next couple of months is going to be called Joseph's Technicolored uh, Dream. Uh, and uh, it's not just a spinoff of the 1970s play, I promise. Um, the Technicolor dream is ultimately Jesus' dream. The dreams that Joseph has, he has two of them in the beginning and he interprets some dreams. Even though uh, they, they are uh, given to him in his arrogance, in his naivete, in his ignorance, uh, they are Jesus' dream. Jesus' dream is fulfilled in Joseph, even though Joseph uh, isn't following Jesus at the beginning of his life. And ultimately, Paul calls it the manifold wisdom of God to draw a multicolored, multi-ethnic nation around himself. It is his dream. This is Jesus' dream to draw the nations to himself. And he's going to use takers, not trusters, like you and me. And somehow, he is going to become like us so we can become like him, a blessing to the nations, to draw nations to himself, to feed nations in famine. This is God's dream over our life that we would have a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-socioeconomic multi-generational family that would gather around a multicolored dream. This is Jesus' dream, and he will not relent. He will not stop to bless people that aren't blessable um, in order to see this dream accomplished. And so um, it was a couple of uh, years ago that I, uh, uh, I got, I got kind of hooked on these memes. Uh, I don't know if you guys can remember these memes called like What the World Thinks I Do memes. I don't know if you guys have ever seen these for your various professions, whether you're a mom or a, 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 a lawyer or a doctor or whatever it may be. Um, I remember I was a teacher, uh, and so this one struck me here, Uh, if you can't see it very well, you know, what my friends think I do as a teacher, my friends think I sit around with a little western, you know, thing and do like puppet shows all day, I guess my friends think I'm pretty cheesy, what my mother thinks I do apparently is just discipline kids, because she thinks that, uh, you know, I try to uh, play, I'm always playing Caesar wherever I am, I guess, Society thinks that I'm just on vacation, man, just those summers, those teachers, y'all are lazy, just sitting around, not doing anything, you know, is what society thinks I do, my students think I live for them, they think I live and sleep and die, if they ever saw me in a public, it was as though they saw Santa Claus, because I'm a unicorn outside the classroom, everybody knows that, uh, what I think I do, I think I'm carpe diem, right, I think I'm Robin Williams on the table, Oh, sir, oh, captain, oh, captain, I think that I'm just, you know, making dreams come true, and what I really do is sit around and do paperwork until, I'm a little secretary. I mean, basically, that's what it is. Uh, I went on to be a youth pastor. I don't know what you think about youth pastors. Uh, the friends think that youth pastors are dorks, apparently, right? So they're just playing, you know, whatever it is, uh, in, in the basement. And then uh, my, my parents, depending if they're believers or non-believers, they think I'm great. They think I'm Billy Graham, you know? They think I'm bringing salvation to the nations. Uh, the elders think I'm Rob Bell, apparently, you know what I mean? So, different views there on, uh, on, on hell and judgment, and so uh, maybe the elders don't appreciate everything that I say sometimes. Uh, who my wife thinks I am, I guess that means she thinks I'm awesome. I don't know what that means. That's Jason Bourne. That's Doug Fields in the middle. He is like a youth specialist extraordinaire, and he's just making the kingdom happen uh, on his Excel spreadsheet, and he's just killing it. Uh, but what I really do is maybe uh, play a couple worship songs with kids, and that would be, that would be a day well spent. <laughs> Last one, um, doctors. I know we had a lot of medical professionals. Uh, let's see if this is true for you. Doctors, my friends think that I am just awesome and a hero, I guess, and I'm just loving kids. Uh, my mom thinks the same thing that I'm just super healthy, because if you're helping people get healthy, you know, you gotta be uh, selling what you're, you know, using what you're selling, so you're healthy too. Maybe that's not true. What society thinks that I do, I just live it up large, man. I'm so rich, I don't even know what to do with my Lamborghini. I just hit <laughs> golf balls into it, apparently. I think it's two separate pictures. Uh, the government thinks that I do... I don't know, that's a political cartoon. I think I'm it's too early in the morning for me to get, but apparently some sort of uh, um, scheme, money scheme there. What I think I do, I think I'm just solving problems like house. And what I really do is just binge out on nachos. I don't know if this is true. And, uh, and study too much, too, reading books too much. Um, dreams, dreams get different. Um, uh, dreams change their shape and their texture when they get closer to you. Um, when you set off at 18 to go and conquer a dream, to go conquer a mountain... Um, the world's, you know, the oyster, and it's not just what should be, it's what could be, and there's nothing but blue sky ahead of you, but once you get up front and close to a dream, whether that's a dream to own a business or to have a family, to be married, uh, the dreams look and feel different once you get up close to them, don't they? Uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's a sense of reality that sets in of something called insurance and overhead, right? And there's something about realities that confront and rude awakenings to dreams, about time management, about uh, emails, and uh, ornery personalities. There's no escape from it. There really, there really is none. And you go off with this starry-eyed vision of what a dream is, and once you, uh, once you confront that dream for all that it really is, um, you, uh, you wake up to what is not so much a fantasy, but what is reality. Um, and the Bible, uh, the Bible has a very um, keen and, I think, appropriate, needed understanding of, of reality. The Bible doesn't talk about reality so much as God's sovereignty, Uh, And when we're confronted with some of these um, uh, less comfortable and less uh, encouraging and less self-affirming facts, uh, what the world calls reality, the the pages of Scripture just calls God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is basically um, the things that he puts into your life in Romans 8 that are uh, helping um, realize good and glory for those that are called according to his purposes. There's nothing that has hit your calendar or uh, really diverted your calendar this week except for what God has allowed and what God has put through his fingers in his sovereignty for good and glory. And so really what's waking us up in the middle of our dream is not so much reality, but God himself. Because his dream is too good for you not to be awoken to. And he, he, uh, he does not create us to be asleep in our own dreams so much as wake us up to his. And so what he's really doing in those brutal hard fact conversations of lack of budget and lack of time and lack of energy and difficult people and controversy and conflict are not things that are outside of his scope. They're not accidents. They're not sort of disregarded misses that God had on the assembly line of life. They are actually authored things that are meant for your good and glory, those called according to his purposes for your good and glory, that God has authored those things into your life to wake you up to a real dream, to his dream. I remember I had a dream um, when I was, I think, 22 years old. This is a real dream, and and, um, I don't know if it was just my mind overthinking things or if it was the Lord really speaking. Uh, But I had a dream, and there was these children in the dream and uh, I couldn't get, uh, I was a teacher at the time, I couldn't get them all to collect. I couldn't get them all in order and, and going in the same direction. Um, and so I tried to collect them uh, first in the living room. So I sat on the couch and I tried to get them to kind of sit down and kind of read a story to them, but they were kind of running around. And then, uh, and then I kind of moved out of that. It was like a, one of those like, old Sunday school rooms with the partitions, the accordions in between. And so I opened up one accordion and I closed it and I went into the second one. And the second room was a classroom. And I stood up in front of the whiteboard with a projector, and I tried to talk at them and tried to get them collected. And then the third one, which I'm the least experienced at by this time, I had, I had a lot of experience with family because me and my wife got married and had kids at 21, and then I started teaching when I was about 22 or 23, and by the time I had this dream, I was 27. This third dream, this third spot in the dream was this little stage. It wasn't unlike this. And, um, and it wasn't perfect, and it was kind of messy, but all the kids, it was different t- tribes, a technicolored kind of dream with lots of different kids. They all gathered around on the stage. And, um, and it was around that time that, you know, it's like I, I had interpreted that and, and prayed about that and read the scriptures and talked to my friends. And over time, we talk about listening to the God's voice over time, that if he's speaking it, he'll be patient to speak to you consistently over time. Um, I sensed at that point a, a real call to ministry. Um, and so uh, I remember uh, soon after that, um, it was like my fifth sermon that I ever gave I was uh, giving to this like huge college ministry thing. There was like a bajillion people there. It was like 2,000 or 3,000 people. And I just bless you if you ever have to preach your fifth sermon ever in front of 5,000 people. It was crazy. And I thought, this must be the dream. But the years went on and, and that, was, uh, that was not at all the flavor and the texture of what God's sovereignty and what reality really was. My reality in youth ministry was a lot more about kids peeing in Gatorade bottles and the smells that you never thought you'd ever smell. Uh, Crash in the church van um, I remember one time, one of my interns, we went out to Camp Iwanataa to go scope out this one area like Jake, like Joshua and the Spies, you know? Go out there to go check out this camp. We went around for like three hours. And uh, guys, I didn't stop laughing for two straight hours. My friend, Dylan, if you're watching this, Dylan, uh, had, had brought his Volvo. We had driven up to the, to the park there to go check out this camp. And we walked up and we parked the Volvo. We walked around for a couple hours to look at these cabins. And we came back and somebody had pulled a full church band straight on top of his Volvo like a mo- monster truck rally. This poor girl was like 16 years old. She was like, I just thought it was a rock. So I started cranking it back in reverse and I ran it over, you know. It's like my, (laughs) it can be a rude awakening. Our dreams can meet this reality, but ultimately there is no reality outside of God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty is molding us and making us because his dream is too good for us to fall asleep to. It's not reality that's waking us up. It's God's dream that's waking us up because his dream is where reality lives, He will get all the glory he deserves. And when he died, he executed a a plan. From the very beginning of time, really, he executed a a redemptive plan and his promises can never fall void and his arm is not too short to save. And the minute he got a hold of you, all reality began to abide in this one dream that he would use you to draw nations to himself. You are created to draw nations. You are created to live in an era and a time of spiritual famine where there's not enough wisdom. There is not enough faith in the land, right? There is not enough courage and encouragement. There's not enough patience in the land. And so because he's good, not because we're good, but because he's good, he's a blesser. He's not a taker. And even though we're takers, he continues to pour out his blessings so that we might have food in the famine. So that so when the hungry and the tired and the sick and the lame and the blind come to you that you would feed the nation's famine. I'm just going to cut right to the chase. I'm just not even going to pontificate or theologize as we get into the text this morning and for the next couple of months. He's ambushing you in this whole passage. He wants to wake you up to his dream. And this is his dream. You ready? He wants you to go foster kids. I'll just be blatant and honest. You know, salesmen, you know, they don't tell you the bottom line till the end. I'll just tell you the bottom line. He wants you to go volunteer at a little middle school camp. That's what he wants you to do. This is his dream. You think that your dream is to go off and, you know, live in Neverland and all this other stuff. It's like, well, then that's, 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 who's at the center of that dream? That's the, that's the dream that we use to escape the reality and, 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 and live in a world where we dictate the beginning, middle, and end of our story. But God is too good to let us sleep in our own dreams and not wake us up to his. And I'm just telling you the bottom line. He wants you to go to the nations. He wants you to learn a language. He wants you to preach the gospel. He wants you to pour your life away because there's no dream big enough for your destiny other than that dream. Your dream is to feed the nations in famine. Your dream is to draw nations to Jesus. That's your dream. That's Jesus' dream over your life. And so this is the story of, of Joseph. Um, and, uh, and it starts out here in, 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 Joseph, in, in Genesis 37. Um, it says that Jacob, this is, Jacob, the one that wrestled in Relentless Grace, that series that we talked about last month before Easter. And it says that Jacob lived in the land where his fathers had stayed in the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. So this is just a little segue. It's almost like a seminary course of theology, just in one verse. The people of God are, are, are lining up with the promises of God. This is what this is means, right? So Jacob is living in this promised land. Abraham was promised a nation and name, and his people are abiding and living in that place. Not because they, not because they did it or they, they were obedient or faithful, because God continued to not allow... They, they were unsuccessful sinners. They were unsuccessful takers. And he drew him them back in his sovereignty to himself to go live in this land. This was the promise, and so the promise is being fulfilled. Now, this little boy, Joseph, who has no idea who he is or where he is, he's completely oblivious to all this call, just gets born, and he's the grandson of this guy, Abraham, and maybe he's heard a couple stories, and maybe he knows about God, and maybe he's prayed a little bit, but he doesn't know God the way that Abraham did, he doesn't know God the way that Jacob did, or, 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 or Isaac did, for that matter, right? So Joseph, it says, is a young man. He's 17 years old. He's tending the flocks with his brothers, his sons, and the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and uh, and he brought their fathers a bad report about them. So in, in Proverbs, that breaks down for us that, that, that gossip, a kind of slander, and he's talking trash, basically, about his brothers. So he's just like us. 17-year-old punk kid. He has no idea what's going on in the world. The world is his oyster. He's, his world is this small, and he, for all he... You know, his parents tell him he hung hung the moon and he has no idea how much the people outside his family hate him, nor the people inside the family sometimes hate him. And he doesn't even know how much his father loves him or how much God wants to bless him. But this is Joseph. Nonetheless, he is an inheritor of this promise. So let's look at at this chart. It kind of helps us break it down. But this is the uh, family line of Jacob. So Jacob, as I was speaking about earlier, has uh, four different wives, okay? Uh, and so Leah, actually, if you look at the far left, Leah was supposed to be his wife. That was the chosen wife. Now, Laban had tricked him to marry her, but she was the weak one, but the one that God chose. And so that was supposed to be the chosen, uh, ch- the chosen line that, uh, that she was born of, which is why Judah is the tribe that follows the line of lineage that's supposed to bring the serpent killer. So Leah is supposed to be one that he, that he got married to, right? But the world, right, the world doesn't choose what God chooses. This is the lesson, the Bible lesson, is that God chooses the things that don't look good on the outside. She had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure. So man chooses what God doesn't choose and chooses his own path. And that's the dichotomy of the two things. So man chooses Rachel. Rachel's the good-looking one, but she can't have any babies. And so on goes the story in, in Genesis in the 20s there, the chapters. So basically, Leah has some babies uh, Rachel wants to have babies, so then she gets her servant Bilhah to have some babies. And then uh, Leah gets jealous of the servant babies, so Leah gets a servant, Zilpah, and she has babies through Zilpah. And then Rachel finally has babies as a miracle, and God fills her womb in, in his mercy, and that's where Joseph is born. Okay? But the whole, whole idea is simply this, is that God is not going after fair, he's going after blessing. And whether it's be the family of God and the world, uh, there is an enmity of the world against the family. There's hostility between the world and the family, and it's not because they're socially or politically incorrect. It's just because the world hates Jesus and his blessing for no reason. The world is hostile to the blesser. That's just, it's just the way that we are. We hate Jesus for no reason, right? And so the family of God is hated in, in hostility by the world, and then inside the family there is hate for an enmity for the chosen line, both for Judah and then uh, for Joseph as well, as, as chosen him for a specific purpose. And so there's hate, uh, and illegitimate hate and hostility that goes from the family that is unchosen towards the family, uh, towards the line that is chosen. But here's the point, and we talked about this at nauseum, but just to reference it again, like it's only in the humanity that there's hostility. It's the fact that people that are blessed, whether it's the family or the line. Both the family and the line that are blessed think they're blessed to be better. You think you're rich because you earned it. You think that you're pretty because you did your makeup the right way. You think that you live in America because you're awesome, right? But you didn't choose any of those, those things. God chose you. And so he's teaching people, like he's showing them why their choosing uh, is nothing, and it's completely fickle and um, unfruitful compared to God's choosing. And so the people that are chosen think they're better, and then the people that are not chosen get bitter, but God's not going for fair, he's going for blessed. And blessed means you have people that are chosen and not chosen together. And the blessed people learn to be a blessing. And the, and the people that are not yet to be blessed realize that being weak is the blessing itself. And this is what family is going on. So anyways, the point is, the continual family line and hostility within continues on, and Joseph is oblivious to all this. He's a 17-year-old kid, and he has no idea how much his parents love him, how much he's favored. He, doesn't, he has no idea what his robe means, right? And uh, he has no idea how much his brothers hate him. So this is what it says about Joseph. Now Israel, who is Jacob, he's the father at the top. It says that Israel, not unlike his father's fathers, loved Joseph more than the rest. What is it about humans? We just like shiny toys. We like, you know, uh, beautiful men and women. We like smart and strong and pretty, and we choose the Sauls rather than David's. This is just the way that it is. We love people because they help us, and because they, uh, they, they, they have this kind of, we have this affection for them. We have favoritism. So it says that, that, that Jacob is like us. And that he loves his brother more than his sons. And he creates this hostility because he doesn't trust God, he trusts his own idol. And he likes the fact that Joseph is like him because he was a younger brother and he knows what it's like to be living in the field. And so he likes Joseph because it reminds him of him. So, anyways, he loves Joseph more than the other brothers, and because of this, he had borne him in his old—no, because he had born him in his old age, and he makes him this ornate robe. And this is a weird, weird obscure term. This robe, this technicolor robe—it it just means um, a kind of favored cloak that he puts on him that identifies him for special status. So he has this ornate robe that he puts on Joseph. In verse four, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. So when I was seventeen years old. I lived in an oyster. Uh, My parents told me I hung the moon, so I thought that I did. My dad bought me a 2400 Taylor 600 series guitar. And I played it every day and learned all the Dave Matthews songs on dial-up internet uh, tabs. You know what I mean? Couldn't read music for a lick, but played the heck out of an ants marching song. And so I played the hardest song. I could play this song stone. And I saw it on this Charlie Rose. And it was just, the fingers just never stop. And I was cruising. And I played it on the the, uh, talent show. And it was pretty good. I mean, I don't think it was great, but it was like, you know, it was all right. And I got through it, and I didn't mess it up. And all my little buddies were down there, like, hooting and hollering, going crazy. And my dad was there, and my mom was there, and, that, and they loved it. And, uh, and that was 17 years old, and, and, and I thought everything was going to go great in life. And how many of you guys know that all of that stuff that I had in that room disappeared pretty quickly when I turned 18 and moved off to college, and uh, I was not the center of my world? When we're 17 years old, we don't know how much the people love us how much they love us. We don't know. We think that the world revolves around us because our parents taught us that. And all we know is this kind of fake and innocent space where our parents create this bubble around us where everybody loves us, or at least we think that they do, and nobody really hates us, and we have no idea about the hostility that's waiting for us outside those doors. The deep political and, and, and racial and interpersonal and theological and the tension that it's about to, we're about to run into Right. When we get into 18 and 19 years old, we don't know the drama that not all marriages end up happy together. We don't know. We don't know the, the plot of evil within pornography and within uh, substance addiction. We don't. We don't know about that world yet, because we live in this little this little space. We're we're oblivious. We're oblivious to the to um. You know, I was uh, high school sweethearts with Kyrie, You know, like you're you're oblivious. Like everything's just Dawson Creek and Third Eye Blind and everything's awesome. You know, and you get out to the world and it's like life is none of that. It's a rude awakening out there. And, and, and so Joseph is, is like us. He has no idea how much his father loves him, he has no idea how much his brothers hate him, he has no, no idea how much hostility awaits him in Egypt. He has no idea about Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, he has no idea about the pit or the prison. He lives in this bubble of innocence, but it's also a bubble of ignorance. And it's a protective little uh, space. And so this robe is going to be dipped in blood, right? They're going to put animal blood on it and he's going to be basically left for dead and sold off to Egypt and he has no idea what's ahead of him. And so you see all this, this ignorance, right? And somewhat arrogance that goes on with Joseph in verse five, he goes to his brothers and he adds insult to injury. Like all these, like his his dad loves him and his brothers hate him and he has no idea what's going on. So he just charges in with this dream and he he has this dream and he's like, "I I don't know why my brothers hate me so much. All I did was tell him this dream. Okay, so let's look, right? So... Uh, 37 verse 5, Joseph has this dream, and we told his brothers, they hated him all the more. It's going to say that several times. It's like as much as, as, much as um, God would, would touch Joseph's life, and as much as he would move forward, you know, in, in his own decisions, his own path apart from his family or with his family, it says that the world just continues to hate him all the more. This is the idea of, of Joseph. Those that are called by God and called according to his purposes are blessed. They're highly favored, but they're also hated. And that's not because of political incorrectness. That's just because of the, 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 uh, the polarization, I guess, of the kingdom of God. And so anyway, so Joseph has this dream. And he goes out and tells his brother. He's completely oblivious to the bubble that he lives in. He says, they hated him all the more. In verse 6, he said to them, listen to this dream I had. Just, get, just wait, you guys are going to love this. Okay, I was up there playing guitar, the stone, and all the girls loved me. And it was great. And this is his dream, and everybody thought it was great. So you guys should think it's great. So verse 7, he says, so we were out there binding these sheaves of wheat, and sheaves of wheat are just these gathered pieces of wheat that, you know, are for, for grain. And he says, these sheaves of grain, and they're out in the field, and suddenly, it was the craziest thing, you won't believe it, my sheaf rose up and stood upright. In the exact same moment, all yours just bowed down to me. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it. It was like I played the stone, it was halfway between a D minor, and it wasn't even the right t- tone, and everybody went crazy. And the world's about me, and it all revolved about me. And it just couldn't, you wouldn't believe how awesome this was. Are you guys not as excited about this dream as I am? Right? So Joseph says, here's the, here's the kicker that we got to think about in this whole series, is that Joseph's dream is arrogant. It's innocent, uh, and, and it is oblivious, and uh, it's arrogant, but it's also accurate. So here's the thing about, about dreams is that Joseph's dream... Is going to lead him into Egypt, down to the pits of Egypt, elevate him up to the highest rank in Egypt, offer food for the nations, and his and his uh, his family will bow down to them. This is a little this is a snapshot from the from the from the future here, right? So let me just read this to you to see where we're going in this in this whole series. But Genesis 50 says this. So when his brothers betray him, and he goes to Egypt, they come back to get food from him, just like all the other nations and. Joseph reveals himself, I'm the brother you killed. I'm the brother you dipped my robe in blood. I'm the brother you sold, you know, to an Ishmaelite. And now I'm in Egypt and now I'm, I, have the key, I, I have the authority, the ring, the robe to, to destroy you. This is what he's about to do. In verse 15, once the father, Jacob, dies, they're like, oh man, the, the other foots going to drop and we're in trouble. And they all go to Joseph and, and they say, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back? So they are about to bow down to him. just like So the dream is arrogant, but it's accurate. The dream is arrogant, but it's accurate. Listen, Joseph holds a grudge and against, against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. So they uh, sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Verse 18, his brothers then came to him just like this dream and they threw himself down before him. He's the youngest one. They're not supposed to bow down to him. This is an upheaval of the whole entire family line. This is not how it works. But God does not work the way that man works. And they do bow down to him. They throw himself before him. Something they would have never imagined at 17. The punk, snot-nosed little kid who has a dream. Who is arrogant and prideful and thinks he's the center of his universe. They're bowing down to him. He does get the last word in that regard. We are slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, It's the same dream. I mean, he can see the dream and recognizing but he doesn't revel in it anymore cuz he's not he's not the throne of that dream you see it the dream is there the dream didn't die it actually got brought to life the dream comes alive when the dreamer dies and somehow between the pit and the palace joseph's entire chemistry his brain everything in his ears is different he sees his dream and the reality different. His world is bigger, but God is bigger too. He realizes how much those that loved him really loved him. They realizes how much those that hate him can hate him. And none of that changes the fact that only God gives and takes dreams in the first place. So he's got a different person in the center of his dream. The dream is accurate. It's arrogant, but it's accurate. And the dream doesn't change. It's the dreamer that's changed. It's the heart of the dreamer. And so Joseph comes into this thing. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But this is the whole, the whole deal. Like, you get 100 on the test for the book of Genesis in this class, right? If you put this as your answer, what is the purpose of Genesis? To tell you a story about God's world going bad, but God being too good to leave it that way. God's relentless grace to pursue humanity, to realize his dream and not ours. To make trusters, to take takers and turn them into trusters and bless people that are unblessable. To be a blessing to the nations, to feed the nations in famine. And that's what he's got for you, and that's what he's got for me. This is the way the dreamer has changed. He's no longer the old Joseph, don't be afraid I'm not in the middle of my dream. Only God is in the middle of the dream. Am I in the place of God? In other words, you didn't send me to Egypt. God sent me there. You can't take or give anything for me in the first place because God's the only one that gives or takes dreams. So I've got no one to, nothing to prove and nowhere to hide and nothing to fight for and nothing to prove other than to trust what God is doing in my life because God is the one who ultimately is, is giving and taking dreams. You're not in charge of your dream. And neither am I. Jesus is in charge of our dreams. And he's the one who has the best dream to feed the nations in the place of famine. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done to save many lives. This is the point. You are not existing here to be a 17-year-old snot-nosed kid where the world revolves around you. You're here to die to his dream, right? So that it can come alive for the very first time. Have you guys have ever played chess against a computer before. It's so, it's so, it's so frustrating because as, as, as much as you are good at chess, the computer's a little bit better than you. And it does that on purpose. Like, it doesn't just step on you, but it just, it it sets you on fire until you, I don't know, it just has some torturous way to kill you in 27 moves. And what you will do is, like, you'll play the computer in chess, and you'll play the move that it played on you the last game. And then it plays a better move, right? So you went from a bad move, and it plays a good move. Then you played a good move, it plays a great move. And then you played a great move, and it plays the greatest move. You can write down L4, 17, whatever, and the computer always wins, right? This is God's sovereignty. God is not sovereign in the sense that we're robots, but he's sovereign in the sense that he owns the destination of all of our lives. And nobody moves in and out of a door unless God allows the door to open. if he opens a door, nobody else can close. And if he closes the door, nobody else can open it. So nobody else has any authority over Joseph's life or your life or my life or our dreams other than him himself. Jesus says, I have all authority, so go and make disciples. This is who you are. You're meant to be coming alive to this dream. And this is the idea. He's great at chess. And he will play chess with you while you play checkers all day long. Except he's not trying to beat you, he's trying to give you victory. And he's the one actually holding your dream, and he's the one that wants to give you the dream that you were born for, that you wouldn't fall asleep to yours. And so it continues, he, there's, a, there's a pattern. I would encourage you to read through this book several times in the next couple of weeks, because it's a forward and backwards read to your kids before they go to sleep kind of thing. And you're going to see the themes and the patterns continue, but there's this pattern of two, you know, that it's said twice, that God will say it twice, you know, amen and amen. This is the idea that he gives them two dreams, and Pharaoh has two dreams, and there's a baker and a, you know, I say candlestick maker every time, that's not right, you know, a cupbearer, right? In the prison, there's two, there's patterns of two. So he, uh, he has this dream, let's see where the second one is. So he has another dream, and he tells his brother, listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time, it's not just the sheaves of wheat. The sun and the moon and the eleven stars. I mean, people reading the Torah, you're talking about wheat. That's talking about farmers. When you talk about the stars and the moon, you're talking about God. You're talking about the heavenlies bowing down. I mean, what an arrogant dream. What an arrogant dream. And it would be arrogant if, if, he was, if Joseph was in the center. But if Jesus is in the center, that's the kingdom's dream. That's, the heaven, that's heaven's dream. So it's, so it's accurate, but it's just a little arrogant. So he has this other dream, and he says the sun and the moon and the eleven stars, they all bow down. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is the deal. Like they, they say, they hated him all the more. And Joseph's name, you wanna know something cool? Joseph's name comes from that root. It's like all the more. It's almost as though like something like it's saying, as much as the world hated him, as much as his brothers tried to take his dream or... or um, chastise him or or sell him off or whatever and and throw him unjustly into prisons and pits as much as Potiphar's wife tried to frame him, all the more they hated him. Listen, all the more God blessed him. That's what his name means. All the more. All the more as as you have antagonizers in your life. Your your antagonizers can't thwart God's dream. As a matter of fact, your antagonizers were only served to see you served into God's dream because nothing can get to you other than pass through the, the hands of God. And as much as you think that people love you and think that they can promote you and if you can please them enough and give them enough reason to, to launch you into your destiny and so forth, nobody opens doors except for God. And even the people that love you can't love you up into his kingdom. And so you have no idea how much people hate you. You have no idea the plots that are forming against you that Jesus has protected you from and angels that are assigned to you that you have no idea you were driving down 85 today and you had no idea there were plots against you. Because you live in a bubble and you think that you create your own dream and write your own story, but you don't. And you also have no idea right now how much people love you. And the people you think love you actually don't. And the ones that are there for you, the ones that actually love Jesus enough to hurt your feelings. You have no idea that even they can't deliver you. His dad is oblivious. He kept the matter in mind, but he has no idea the dreams that are happening around Joseph's life. He has no conception or vision for the kingdom of heaven and the garden of Eden that he's willing to pour out on us. He have no, we have no, the eye has not seen, the mind cannot comprehend the depths and the love of God and the dreams and the purposes he has for his people. This is the idea that everyone's asleep to the dream until he wakes us up. And God's playing chess while we play checkers. And he's the only one that opens doors or closed doors in the first place. That we might be woken up to the dream. He wants you fostering kids, he wants you discipling nations, he doesn't want you in a Bentley. That dream's too small. He wants you, seeing Greenville come to the nations, he wants, he wants to see mothers and fathers and children, small little ones like us who have nothing to give and everything to gain in Jesus, be raised up to feed people in a time of famine. We live in a time of famine, in a time of depression and anxiety and concern and political upheaval that the people of God would have something in their hand to feed nations. That's the end of the dream. They all come to him and he forgives his family and he feeds his family and he feeds Egypt and he feeds the nations because God is the only one that opens doors. God's the only one on the throne, the only one that can shoulder dreams, the real dream, which is the nations coming to him. So this is the reminder, right? Ephesians 2 its already been read this morning, but we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were asleep in our own selfish little bubble. And we thought because our parents told us we hung the moon and we didn't smell bad that we, that we were perfect but our innocence was ignorance and it was arrogance. And us getting confronted and us getting betrayed, that's not outside his, pur- his purview. He will use all things. He will use everything. He will use all things for the good and glory. And he has not allowed one chest move to move past his fingers. And he will not relent in delivering his dream to your life because you and your purpose and your Genesis origin is far too eternal to serve some other man and God other than him. And he will not relent until we are woken up So it says, we used to live in the flow of this world and we followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdoms of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who were living among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires of our thoughts. I mean, this is the idea. What is a dream if it's without Jesus? A dream without Jesus is loveless. A dream without Jesus is an imagination for something where I'm the one who makes all decisions. Isn't that what it is? When I dream without Jesus... When I dream with other people that aren't around me and I'm just the big shot and I call all things, isn't that just me dreaming a fallacy? Me, you know, having the business or whatever it is that I think, it's like, where's Jesus in there? Where's the nations? Where's the poor? Where's the generations? That's just an escape. That's not, that's not a dream. That's a fallacy. But then the world tells us to not dream, right? The world tells us that material is all that there is and so to have reality without a dream is hopeless. It's just empty, But Jesus is not saying don't have a dream and he's also saying don't be hopeless. He's saying dream with Jesus at the center because that's basically prophecy. Anything that you think about the future with Jesus at the center can't come to you other than the fact that Jesus gave it to you if Jesus is at the center of it. And so it's by grace that we've been saved but woken up for our own American dream. Verse eight, it's by grace that you've been saved from this through faith that this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork. We are poemas unreplaceable fingerprints snowflakes unique people of god that have been given work to do that if we don't do it someone else won't do it for us you've been given something a role in this thing a a role in the story that's not your story and you're not the center of it but he's telling a greater story than you could ever imagine in verse 10 for we are god's handiwork created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared for us in advance to do there are 75 typologies of joseph to jesus as i close today Seventy-five ways that Jesus and Joseph are the same, and it's just unbelievable. I mean, that they're both shepherds, and they're both miraculous births, and they both married Gentiles. They're both you know, sold for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, it's as though, as though Jesus was like putting Joseph's robe on and walking around to show us what he's like beforehand. I mean, every typology of Jesus is incomplete and imperfect. But Joseph's story, it's very, I mean, it's not that he's sinless, but the story is trying to present to us a storyline that doesn't have a lot of sin in it. I mean, it depends on how you debate it and splice it up. But he is a very astute preview, coming, attractive, coming attraction to know who Jesus is once he shows up on the scene. That he's like Joseph, and we see this harmony of prophecy and Jesus and Messiah back and forth and back and forth, the typology between who Joseph is and who Jesus is. Jesus or Joseph reveals who Jesus will be when Jesus comes. And so this story is awakening us to dreams that we might die as a dreamer, and come alive for the first time to be a kind of Joseph, to be a typology of Jesus. And so I want to close today just by reading a couple of scriptures of the ways that Joseph is like Jesus and therefore the ways that we should be like Jesus as well. The ways that Jesus is coming to bring and fulfill a dream within inside of us, to be like Joseph, too, to begin in arrogance, but move to humility and move to a place where a kingdom dream might grab hold of our hearts and our minds. But both Joseph and Jesus, and by his grace, so will we be the object of, of a father's special love. John 3.1 says, see the great love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Jacob's father loved Joseph. And you know what? Your father loves you too. And you have no idea how much the father loves you. You're oblivious to the plan he's unfolding in your life. You have no concept of how deep and how wide is love right now, I promise. You're asleep to it. Both of them had promises of divine exaltation. This is an arrogance. This is humility. This is truth, the way that a revelation that Jesus has has offered us in his death and resurrection, Ephesians 2 verse 6, that says that God has raised you up with Christ and seated you in heavenly places, in order that the coming ages might see the incomparable riches. The givers, you know, that the takers are given to and blessed and blessed beyond what they can serve. You're you were created for the dream of divine ex- exaltation. Uh, You were created to be like Jesus, to be mocked by family. 2 Peter 3 says that knowing, first of all, I don't know if you want this dream, count the cost before you sign up for it, but this is what he means by the dream. The dream is not the American dream. The dream is the gospel. He was mocked by his family, knowing, first of all, the scoffers that will come the last day, scoffing following their own sinful desires. Has anyone ever said this to you, either by body language or verbal language? Where is this promise that's coming? Has anyone in your family mocked you? Count yourself blessed because you're part of a dream. He was sold for pieces of silver, Paul says that his ministry allowed other people to get rich, right? He said, already you have what you want, already you have become rich in 1 Corinthians 4. You have begun to reign and not without us. How I wish that you could really have begun to reign so that you might reign, we might reign with you. He says that he's a base so that others can abound and that other people will profit off of him. And that's all the more glory for him because it allows him to see the nations come to Jesus. He was stripped of his robe and so was Joseph and so will we. This is what Hebrews 11 says, that of the believers, the dream leads people to be jeered and flogged and even chained in a prison. There's people around the world living the dream of Jesus, more alive than us sometimes. But they're being flogged the way that, that Jesus and Joseph were flogged. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. This gathering that we have today is expensive. We're oblivious to how expensive this gathering is. It might be free to you, but it's costly to somebody. To have the ability to gather in this place today has been expensive and it's been a great honor for some to live in this dream, to be killed by the sword. This is Hebrews 11, the faith chapter. They, abound, they, they, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, not the ornery, you know, the, the multicolored robe, destitute and persecuted and mistreated to be like Jesus. He was delivered up to the Gentiles just like Joseph was. It says, I have given them your word. This is, this is Jesus praying for us to even today. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them for no reason. For they are not of this world, and more uh, than any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world to live in their own dream, but you would send them into this world and you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that you too, they too may be sanctified. We don't have time, but um, jo- Joseph and Jesus, and so will we by his grace be falsely accused. This is a great honor in the dream of heaven. Uh, Joseph and Jesus, and so will we, be faithful in temptation. He doesn't tempt us beyond what we can bear. Joseph and Jesus and us, by his grace, are thrown into prison. Just like Paul says, I'm in prison and chains for Christ. But to die is gain and to live is Christ. That's the dream. He's waking us up to this dream. He's too good to allow us to sleep on our own. He stood before rulers, and when we stand before rulers, he directs us not to conjure up our own speech, but allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us in that hour because the the Holy Spirit will give us words to stand before rulers because we have appointments. You don't know this, maybe, but you have appointments with rulers, with authorities, and you're supposed to stand, and the Holy Spirit will give you words. This is God's dream for you. He stood before rulers, his power of the Holy Spirit was acknowledged. Right? By others. When he interprets the dreams, they say they only could have interpreted these dreams by the Holy Spirit. And so God says to tarry in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit falls upon you and the Holy Spirit lives in you that authorities would recognize your heavenly authority because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He saves his rebellious brothers from death. Matthew 5 says that we should be blessed to be persecuted. He's exalted and thrown into humiliation. We're chars of clay and we're humiliated so other people can be uplifted. He embraces his God's purpose even though it brings him intense physical harm. And so on and so forth. He's the instrument of God. He uses, he uses at the hands of the Gentiles. He welcomes Gentiles to be a part of his family. He marries a Gentile. Both Joseph marries a Gentile and Jesus marries Gentiles. He gives the hungry people bread. He feeds the nations in times of famine. He fed the multitude. He, he multiplied the fish and the, and the loaves and so will you. And people must bow their knee before Jesus and so will we. So I have a couple of intentional questions and we're going to close in a time of prayer ministry. But as we read through, it's basically Genesis 37 through 50. This is the closing chapter of not just Joseph's story but the whole entire story that he exalts even despite the curses even despite the taking and the selfishness and the, and the untrust he, he exalts this undeserving family up above the highest nation and he feeds nations through them. This has been his plan at the beginning not because they're good or deserve it but because he's sovereign and he's too good to let them go and, and I wonder if you considered in your group just take a picture of it we won't go over all of them this morning but um, in the intentional questions, I maybe thought you would think about letter A, what were your dreams at 17? And then letter C, probably the most important question, what part of your dream have you been dying to? It's a rude awakening when we find out that people that we thought loved us didn't love us as much as we thought, and the betrayal is part of it, that our robe gets dipped in blood, and some, some of our inner ignorance is just arrogance in some cases. It's a startling reality to be woken up, but, but Jesus is a great chess player while we play checkers. And he has not allowed anything to slip through his fingers except for the things that will bring God and good and glory to this world to feed nations in time of famine. How is he waking you up for his dream because you wouldn't want to miss his dream living in yours? And let it be, let it be disruptive. Let it be a little bit chaotic. Let it be a little bit above and outside of our our scope and scale. But how is he waking you up to his dream? I want you to consider that as you read the process of Jesus making Joseph a typology of Jesus and making you a typology of Jesus as well in his image. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.